please rise as I read the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in the Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending on him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. And after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is hand. Repent ye in the name of the gospel. Please receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Loving and gracious God, for the beautiful gifts of being connected to one another and to you, we say thank you for the communion of life together, for the sweetness of community, and for your grace which sustains us and guides us. O oh God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, for you, O oh God, are our strength and our life. Amen. Those of you who know me well will know that I love to be in the garden. Not just sitting in the garden appreciating it, but working in the garden. I love planting, I love pruning, I love transplanting and weeding, and you can, you know, you can tell me that you want me to come work in your garden, but I trust me, I've got plenty of my own. But it's work that I love. I love to work in the garden, being near the earth, my hands in the dirt, breathing in the aromas of watered ground and sun-warmed plants and flowers is medicine for my soul. Perhaps this would have been the case even if I had been raised in a big city, but I tend to believe that my childhood spent, frankly, mostly outside, <laughs> on our 20 acres on Kiefer Hill in Oklahoma and in the Ozark Hills where my paternal grandparents lived have a lot to do with how much I love to be in the garden. In both of those places, I spent hours in big vegetable gardens, weeding and gathering up the potatoes from the earth that daddy overturned with his gas-powered push tiller, picking beans, running through rows of corn, pausing every now and then to smell the sweetness of the ears as they developed. 
My first flower garden as a child was a tiny patch of ground that was on either side of the cement, I said that on purpose, cement ramp to the backyard shed. That's how I said it as a kid. I planted marigold seeds that I watered and nurtured until they finally grew and blossomed, emanating that sweet, pungent aroma that many of you will know well. When I step into my flower gardens now, I get reconnected to all of this, not just as a memory, but viscerally, spiritually, soulfully. I get reconnected to myself in a way that feels like I've come home to my own body, like all the parts of me that get tucked away in internal lockboxes or get, wander off and get lost somewhere, are welcomed and received again. And I say again, because what I'm talking about is soul. Soul, the unique core of who we are. It's present with us from the moment we enter this world. But as we grow, we often lose touch with our soul and need to try to reconnect with it, to return to it. But as children, we sort of naturally live close to our soul, or what some call, Thomas Burton has called, true self. Author and teacher Parker Palmer observes this in his first grandchild. He writes about it saying, my granddaughter arrived on earth as this kind of person rather than that or that or that. As an infant, for example, she was almost always calm and focused, quietly absorbing whatever was happening around her. She looked as if she sort of got everything, enduring life's tragedies, enjoying its comedies, and patiently awaiting the day when she could comment on all of it. <laughs> Today, he says, with her verbal skills well honed, this description will still fits the teenager. In my granddaughter, he said, I actually observed something I could once take only on faith. We are born with a seed of selfhood that contains the spiritual DNA of our uniqueness, an encoded birthright knowledge of who we are, why we're here, and how we are related to others. When I work in the garden, I connect to an original experience of living close to true self. Not in the sense that I missed my calling and should have been a gardener or a farmer, but rather that I connect with what it felt like to be me as a child, fully embodied, unself-conscious, soaking up every detail around me, 
throwing myself into things, working in a very focused way, being curious and creative, taking delight in the beauty and the magic of nature and of life. Gardening reconnects me to my soul, to the core that is uniquely me. Palmer writes this, philosophers haggle about what to call this core of our humanity. Thomas Merton called it true self. Buddhists call it original nature or big self. Quakers call it the inner teacher or inner light. Hasidic Jews call it spark of the divine. Humanists call it integrity and identity. In popular parlance, people often just call it soul. He says, what we call it matters little, since the origins, nature, and destiny of call it what you will are forever hidden from us. But that we name it is very important. For it is the objective ontological reality of selfhood that, when we pay attention to it, keeps us from reducing ourselves or others in ways that diminish our humanity and threaten the quality of our lives. We are not just labels. The other is not just that. We are more, all of us, than chemicals and cells and social programming. There's more to us than that. What other examples might concretely identify soul? Well, just think about people that you know well. Think about someone who you've known for years and who you really care about, but who in a moment is making really bad choices and falling into despair. You can't understand why it's happening because you look at that person, you say, that's not the person I know. Or perhaps you have another friend who had been in a time of great alienation from her own self, who all of a sudden begins to seem to find herself. And you say, she's finally discovering who she really is. She's come into her own. See, we perceive soul in other people and use it as a kind of benchmark of their well-being or how they're doing. Palmer says, quote, deeper still, we find evidence of true self in our own self-awareness, in experiences we would not have if biology, psychology, and sociology were the whole of who we are. I know I have true self, he says, when I encounter a painful truth that my ego has tried hard to evade and am compelled by the inner teacher, Palmer is a Quaker, to confront it. I know I have true self when my self-protective heart opens up and another person's joy or suffering becomes my own. I know I have a true self when desolation visits and I lose my taste for life and yet 
find within myself a life force that will not die. But he says this too. He says, the strongest evidence for true self comes from seeing what happens when we try to live as if we did not have one. The consequences for denying the call of the soul, of the true self, can be deathly. Right now, in our culture, we're experiencing epidemics of loneliness and isolation, of depression and anxiety, and I worry that a key factor fueling this is a disconnection from soul, a disconnection from the core of who we truly, uniquely are. Soulless or soul-starved lives, persons who are at odds between their true self and their day-to-day lives will tend to fall into places of struggle and suffering. Our gospel for today and for next week, actually, speak directly into these realities. In our text, we get Mark's characteristically terse telling of some big events in Jesus's life. And Mark tells this story in what I'm gonna call three movements. Love, struggle, and connect. The first movement is Jesus's baptism by John in the Jordan River. And in this moment, there is clarity about the core of who Jesus is. Jesus is God's beloved child. And who Jesus is, in all his uniqueness, pleases God. As Christians, we teach that through baptism, we are adopted by God and brought into the Christian part of God's family, incorporated into God's own life, enfolded into God's love. And this isn't to say, of course, that you aren't already enfolded in God's love, even if you've not been baptized or even if you are never baptized, but rather that in baptism like Jesus, our truest identity is affirmed and confirmed, namely, that we are beloved children of God and that our divinely created uniqueness, our soul, our true self, is blessed and beloved by God. Love is the starting point. The second movement Mark highlights is when spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness where he struggles with temptation by the one called Satan, also known as the deceiver, the tempter, the adversary, or as I like to call it, the devilish voice. Mark doesn't give us the details that we receive in other gospel accounts, but I tend to believe that the test that Jesus faced may be what we all face. The voices, the forces, the impulses that would separate us from our true self and from God. I want to share a few points that Parker Palmer makes about just the baseline understandings of the function of soul, like how soul works, what soul wants to do for us and within us. 
First, he says, the soul wants to keep us rooted and ground in the ground of our own being, resisting the tendency of other faculties, like the intellect and ego, to uproot us from who we are. What is the temptation? Think for a minute about how Jesus would have been tempted to get into his own way, head in ways that tried to talk him out of trusting God. Or got caught in his own ego in ways that led him away from his true identity and calling. Any of you ever get caught in your head in a way that you're, you get the spin cycle going and it tries to talk you out of things that you actually in your core know are true? Do you ever get pulled out of yourself or pulled away from yourself, the things that you know in your heart of hearts are who you are, but you get led down another path for some other reason? The soul, Parker Palmer says, wants to keep us connected to the community in which we find life, for it understands that relationships are necessary if we are to thrive. Think about how Jesus could have tried to rely on his own resources and strength, attempting to do what he was called to do without constant communion with God and without creating a community who traveled and co-labored with him. Anyone here ever been tempted to be isolated and to try to be a lone ranger? It's so easy in our culture right now, particularly to become isolated from community and to fall into habits, perverted habits of self-reliance. The soul wants to tell us the truth about ourselves, about our world and the relationship between the two, whether that truth is easy to hear or not. Imagine how difficult it must have been for Jesus to acknowledge the reality that who he was, simply who he was, would bring him into direct conflict and suffering, and that his humility and his love and clarity of purpose would be ridiculed and rejected by the world. Do we all not struggle in one way or another? to look at and own the full truth of our own lives, or to acknowledge where our true self and the world are at odds. The soul wants to give us life and wants us to pass that gift along, to become life givers in a world that deals too much death. This temptation, as I see it, would be to look into the world and see only death when there is so much life that offers itself to us. To look into the world and see only the challenge and not the promise. The temptation also to cling to life instead of being willing to risk life for the sake of the other who needs to be set free. Jesus would have faced this temptation at depths we can only imagine. How often do we ourselves find ourselves engaged in things that are not life-giving for us or for others, but simply are soul-killing? 
We come into this world as God's good creation with unique and beloved souls, whole, undivided, present. Our souls desire the good things that Palmer was talking about, and yet the temptations that Jesus faced are our own. There is so much that can pull us away from God and from our own soul. It is a struggle to resist. But both God and our soul persistently call us back to lives that are grounded, connected, and whole. In the third movement of our passage today, Jesus has emerged from the wilderness and its tests, connected to his own true self. He goes into the Galilee with clarity of purpose and message and with good news. And the good news is that God does call us back to our true self. We are called and invited to repent, to turn away from what separates us and divides us from our own soul and from God. And God is gracious and merciful, longing for us to reconnect to that which is most true, most real, most divine in our own being, the love of God. The very next thing, if you read on in the story, just a verse or two is that Jesus does in Mark's account is to begin calling together a community who will be the companions and co-laborers for the journey. The third movement in today's text is about connection with God and with our own soul and with community. Today, Mark tells a story in three movements. The story doesn't ignore the struggle that is part of every human life, the struggle to resist being pulled into soul-stealing ways of living and being, the struggle to truly acknowledge and honor our own soul and the souls of others, precious in God's sight, the struggle to believe the good news of God's grace. But the story begins with love, and it ends with invitation and connection. When we begin to come to our senses and realize that we're living at odds with our own true self, the love of God is there to hold us, and the grace of God is there to invite us to begin the journey back to connection with our own truest self, and to God. Over the years, I've learned that for me, that journey includes, among many other things, long stretches of time digging around in the dirt. I wonder what those things might be for you. This story of love, struggle, and connection is what we're going to be exploring in various ways over these weeks of Lent ahead. It's also the story that led John Wesley to create a way for Christians to gather in small groups around a central question. How does your soul 
prosper. How does your soul prosper? These days, we might ask the question this way. How is it with your soul? It's an important question. How would you answer it today?